Section 5 of History of the Catholic Church from the Renaissance to the French Revolution by Rev. James McCaffrey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 The Religious Revolution Lutheranism and Zwinglianism in Germany. The religious revolt that had been foretold by many earnest ecclesiastics began in Germany in 1517. Its leader was Martin Luther the son of a minor, born at Eiselben in 1483. As a boy he attended school at Eisenach and Magdeburg, supporting himself by singing in the streets until a kind benefactress came to his assistance in the person of Ursula Cotta. His father, having improved his position in the world, determined to send the youth to study law at the University of Erfurt, which was then one of the leading centres of humanism on the northern side of the Alps. But though Luther was in close touch with some of the principal classical scholars of Germany, and was by no means an indifferent classical scholar himself, there is no evidence of his having been influenced largely in his religious views by the humanist movement. He turned his attention principally to the study of philosophy, and having received his degree in 1505, he began to lecture on the physics and ethics of Aristotle. Suddenly, to the surprise of his friends, and the no small vexation of his father, the young Luther, who had not been particularly remarkable for his religious fervor, abandoned his career at the university and entered the novitiate of the Augustinian Monastery at Erfurt, July 1505. The motives which induced him to take this unexpected step are not clear. Some say he was led to do so by the sudden death of a student friend, others that it was in fulfillment of a vow which he had made during a frightful thunderstorm that overtook him on a journey from his father's house at Erfurt well he himself tells us that he became a monk because he had lost confidence in himself of his life as a student very little is known for certain probably he was no worse and no better than his companions in a university city which was described by himself in later life as a beer-house and a nest of immorality the sudden change from the freedom and excitement of the university to the silence and monotony of the cloister had a depressing influence on a man like luther who, being of a nervous, high-strung temperament, was inclined to pass quickly from one extreme to another. He began to be gloomy and scrupulous, and was driven at times almost to despair of his salvation. But Stoppitz, the superior of the province, endeavored to console him by impressing on him the necessity of putting his trust entirely in the merits of Christ. Yet in spite of his scruples, Luther's life as a novice was a happy one. He was assiduous in the performance of his duties, attentive to the instruction of his superiors, and especially anxious to acquire a close acquaintance with the sacred scriptures, the reading and study of which were strongly recommended to all novices in the Augustinian order at this period. In 1506 he was allowed to make his vows, and in the following year he was ordained priest. During the celebration of his first Mass, he was so overcome by a sense of his own unworthiness to offer up such a pure sacrifice that he would have fled from the altar before beginning the canon, had it not been for his assistance, and throughout the ceremony he was troubled lest he should commit a mortal sin by the slightest neglect of the rubrics. At the breakfast that followed, to which Luther's relatives had been invited, father and son met for the first time, since Luther entered the monastery. While the young priest waxed eloquent about the happiness of his vocation, and about the storm from heaven that helped him to understand himself, his father, who had kept silent throughout the repast, unable to restrain himself any longer, interrupted suddenly with the remark that possibly he was deceived, and that what he took to be from God might have been the work of the devil. 
I sit here, he continued, eating and drinking, but I would much prefer to be far from this spot. Luther tried to pacify him by reminding him of the godly character of monasticism, but the interruption was never forgotten by Luther himself, or by his friends who heard it. After his ordination, the young monk turned his attention to theology, but unfortunately, the theological training given to the Augustinian novices at this period was of the poorest and most meagre kind. He studied little, if anything, of the works of the early fathers, and never learned to appreciate scholasticism as expounded by its greatest masters, St. Thomas or St. Bonaventure. His knowledge of scholastic theology was derived mainly from the works of the rebel friar, William of Ockham, who, in his own time, was at constant war with the popes, and who, during the greater part of his life, if not at the moment of his death, was under sentence of excommunication from the church. The writings of such a man, betraying as they did an almost complete unacquaintance with the scriptures, and exaggerating men's natural powers to the undervaluing or partial exclusion of grace, exercised a baneful influence on a man of Luther's tastes and temperaments. Accepted by Luther as characteristic of scholastic theology, such writings prejudiced him against the entire system. Acting on the advice of the provincial, Stoppitz, he gave himself up with great zeal to the study of the Bible, and later on he turned his attention to the works of St. Augustine, particularly the works written in defense of the Catholic doctrine on grace against the Pelagians. In 1508 he went to the University of Wittenberg, founded recently by Frederick of Saxony, to lecture on logic and ethics, and to continue his theological studies. But for some reason, as yet unexplained, he was recalled suddenly to his monastery at Erfurt, where he acquired fame rapidly as a lecturer and preacher. Thirty foundations of the Augustinians in Saxony had accepted the reform begun by Andrew Perls in the fifteenth century, and had separated themselves definitely from the unreformed houses of the order in Germany. They were subject immediately to the general of the order, whose vicar at this time in Saxony was the well-known humanist Stoppitz. The latter was anxious to bring about a reunion between the two parties, and to have himself appointed as superior. But the party who stood for the strict observance were opposed bitterly to such a step, and determined to send a representative to Rome to plead their cause. The fact that they selected so young a man as Luther to champion their interest is a sufficient proof of the position which he had won for himself among his religious brethren. He was looked up to already as an ornament of the order, and his selection for this highly important mission served to increase the overweening pride and self-confidence that had manifested themselves already as weak spots in his character. Accompanied by a companion of his order, he started on his long journey across the Alps. As he reached the heights of Monte Mario and surveyed the popes, he fell on his knees, according to the custom of the pilgrims, and hailed, The city thrice sanctified by the blood of martyrs. He had looked forward with pleasure to a stay in Rome, where he might have an opportunity of setting his scruples to rest by a general confession of his sins. But, unfortunately, his brother Augustinians in Rome, and those with whom he came most in contact, seemed to have been more anxious to regale him with the stories about the real or imaginary scandals of the city than to give him spiritual consolation or advice. Yet in later life, when he had definitely separated from the church, and when he was most anxious to blacken the character of Rome and the popes, it is remarkable that he could point to very little detrimental to them of which he had personal knowledge, and was forced to rely solely on what had been told him by others. Nor did he leave Rome as a declared enemy of the papacy, 
for even so late as 1516 he defended warmly the supremacy of the Pope as the one safeguard for the unity of the Church. Many of his biographers, indeed, assert that as he stood by the Scala Sancta and witnessed the pilgrims ascending on their bare knees, he turned aside disgusted with the sight and repeated the words of St. Paul, The just man lives by his faith. But such a statement, due entirely to the imagination of his relatives and admirers, is rejected as a legend by those best qualified to judge. The threatened union of the strict and unreformed that had occasioned Luther's journey to Rome was abandoned, but it is worthy of note that Stoppitz had succeeded in detaching him from his former friends, and that he returned to Germany a convinced and violent opponent of the party of strict observance, who had sent him to Rome as their representative. During his stay in the city there is good reason for believing that on his own behalf he sought for permission to lay aside his monastic habit, and to devote himself for ten years to study in Italy, but his request was refused, on the ground that it was not supported by the authority of his superiors. This petition was probably the foundation for the rumors that were circulated in Germany by his opponents, that while in Rome he endeavored to have himself secularized, and to obtain a dispensation to marry. On his return to Germany he devoted himself once more to the study of theology, in preparation for the doctorate which he won at Wittenberg in 1512. Almost immediately he was appointed professor at the university, and undertook to lecture on the Psalms. His eloquence and his imagination, his retentive memory, enabling him to illustrate his texts or parallel passages drawn from the books of the Old Testament, and in a certain way his exaggerations, his strength of diction, and his asperity of language towards all with whose views he did not find himself in agreement, made his lectures most popular at the university, and filled his hall with an eager and attentive audience. Among the students, Luther had no rival, and even the few professors who were inclined to resent his methods and his views were captivated by the magic influence of their brilliant young colleague. The Augustinians, mindful of the honor he was achieving for their order, hastened to appoint him to the important position of district vicar, 1515, while the elector, Frederick, could not conceal his delight at having secured the services of so capable a professor for the new university. At Wittenberg, Luther felt himself completely at home. He was proud of the distinctions conferred upon him by his brethren, and of the influence accorded to him by his companions in the university. Great as were his industry and his powers of application, yet they were put to the most severe test to enable him to complete the program he had set himself to accomplish. His lectures at the university, his sermons preached in the Augustinian church, his visitations of the houses of his order in the district over which he was vicar, his correspondence, partly routine and partly entailed by his close relations with some of the leading men in Germany, occupied all his time, even to the exclusion of the spiritual exercises enjoined by his rule. Very frequently he neglected to celebrate Mass, or even to read the Divine Office, and then, alarmed by his negligence and guilt, he had recourse to extraordinary forms of penance. Fits of laxity were followed by fits of scrupulousness, until at last he was driven at times almost to despair. It was then that he called to mind the consoling advice given to him by his superior, that he should put his trust in the merits of Christ, and the teaching of St. Augustine, on the frailty of human nature, unless it was aided and supported by divine grace. He began to develop the idea that justification could not be acquired by good works, that concupiscence could not be overcome, and that consequently man could be justified only by the imputation of the merits of Christ. Years before, views such as these had been passing through his mind, 
as may be seen in his sermons against the Augustinians of the strict observance. But they found adequate expression only in his commentaries on the epistles of St. Paul to the Romans and to the Galatians, 1515-1516. Still, as yet, he held strongly to the principle of authority in matters of religion, and inveighed against heretics who would dare to set aside the authority of the Pope in order to follow their own judgment. In reality, however, his own teaching on merit and justification was no longer in harmony with Catholic doctrine, and only a slight occasion was required to bring him into open and definite conflict with the authorities of the Church. This occasion was provided by the preaching in Germany of an indulgence proclaimed by Leo X, 1513-21. to 21. The building of St. Peter's had been begun by Julius II, and was continued by his successor, Leo X, the son of Lorenzo de' Medici, and the great patron of the humanist movement. In order to provide funds to enable him to continue this gigantic undertaking, Leo X proclaimed an indulgence. In addition to confession and holy communion, it was ordered that those of the faithful who wished to share in the spiritual favors granted by the Pope should contribute according to their means for the completion of St. Peter's, or that they should pray for the success of the work in case poverty did not permit them to give alms. The publication of the indulgence in a great part of Germany was entrusted to Albrecht of Brandenburg, who had been elected Archbishop of Mainz, though he was already Archbishop of Madelberg and Administrator of Halberstadt. The fees to be paid by an Archbishop appointed to Mainz were exceptionally high, not to speak of the large sum required for the extraordinary favor of being allowed to hold two Archbishoprics. As a means of enabling Albrecht to raise the required amount, it was proposed by an official of the dottery that he should be allowed to retain half of the contributions given on the occasion of the publication of the indulgence in the provinces of Mainz and Magdeburg, and in the lands of the House of Brandenburg. To publish the indulgences in the above-mentioned territories, Albrecht, appointed the Dominican John Tietzel, who had acquired already considerable renown as a preacher. Tietzel was a man of solid education and of good moral standing, whose reputation as a successful popular preacher stood high in Germany at this period. Many grave abuses have been alleged against him by his enemies concerning his manner of carrying out the office entrusted to him by the archbishop, and in regard to his own private life serious crimes have been laid to his charge. But as a matter of history it is now admitted that Tietzel was a much maligned man, that his own conduct can bear the fullest scrutiny and that in his preaching the worst that can be said against him is that he put forward as certainties especially in regard to gaining indulgences for the souls of the faithful departed what were merely the opinions of certain schools of theologians nor is it true to say that as the result of his activity vast sums of money made their way into the papal treasury the accounts of the monies received during the greater portion of the time are now available and it can be seen that when all expenses were paid comparatively little remained for either the Archbishop of Mainz or the building of St. Peter's. Tietzel preached with considerable success in Halberstadt, Magdeburg, and Leipzig, and in May 1517 he found himself in the neighborhood of Wittenberg, whence many people flocked to see him and to gain the indulgence. This was not calculated to please Luther or his patron, the elector, Frederick of Saxony, and provided Luther with an occasion of giving vent to his own views on good works grace and justification years before both in his sermons attacking the augustinians of the strict observance for their own overconfidence in the merits of good works and penance and in his commentaries on the epistles of st paul to the romans and to the galatians he had indicated already that his view on man's power to do anything good 
and on the means and nature of justification, differed widely from those put forward by Catholic theologians. At last, after careful consideration, following the bent of his own inclination, and the advice of his friends, he determined to take the field openly, by publishing, on the eve of the festival of all saints, 1517, his celebrated seventy theses against indulgences. This document was drawn up with great skill and foresight. Some of the theses were perfectly orthodox, and professed great reverence for the teaching of the Church and the authority of the Pope. Others of them were open to an orthodox as well as to an unorthodox interpretation. Others, still, were opposed clearly and definitely to Catholic doctrine, and all of them were put forward in a way that was likely to arrest public attention and to win the support of the masses. They were affixed to the doors of the University Church in Wittenberg, and copies of them were spread broadcast through Germany. Before a week had elapsed, they were discussed with eagerness in all parts of the country, and the state of feeling became so intense that Tietzel was obliged to discontinue his mission and to retire to Frankfurt, where under the direction of Wimpina, he set himself to draw up a number of counter-theses, which he offered to defend. The circumstances of the time were very favorable to a campaign such as Luther had initiated. The princes of Germany, and even some of the bishops, made no secret of their opinion that indulgences had been abused, and many of them were anything but displeased at the step that had been taken by the Wittenberg professor. The old opposition between the Teuton and the Latin was growing daily more marked, owing to the violent and abusive language of men like Ulrich von Hutten, who posed as German patriots, while the Humanist party, roused by the attacks made upon Ruchlin by the Dominicans of Cologne, backed by the scholastic theologians, were not sorry to see their opponents challenged in their own special department, and obliged to act on the defense. The knights, or lower nobles, too, who had been deprived of many of their privileges by the princes, were ready for any scheme of violence, in the hope that it might conduce to their advantage and the lower classes, ground down for centuries, were beginning to realize their own strength, partly owing to the spread of secret societies, and were willing to lend a ready ear to a leader who had given expression to views that were coursing already through their minds. From all parts of Germany, letters of congratulation poured in upon Luther. Many of these came from men who had no desire for a religious change, who had thought that Luther's campaign was directed only against abuses in the church, from the humanists, from several of the professors and students of Wittenberg, and even from the superiors of his order, he received unstinted praise and encouragement. At least one of the bishops, Lorenz von Bibra of Würzburg, hastened to intercede for him with Frederick the Elector of Saxony, while none of the others took up an attitude of unflinching opposition. Tietzel, who had been forced to abandon his work of preaching, defended publicly at Frankfurt on the Main a number of counter-theses formulated by Conrad Wimpina. To this attack, Luther replied in a sermon on indulgences, in which he aimed at expressing, in a popular style, the kernel of the doctrine contained in his theses. Sylvester Prioraz, the master of the sacred palace in Rome, to whom Luther's theses had been forwarded for examination, published a sharp attack upon them, and was answered in Luther's most abusive style. The most distinguished, however, of the men who took the field against him was John Eek, professor of theology and vice-chancellor of the university of ingolstadt he was a man well versed in the scriptures and in the writings of the fathers a ready speaker and an incisive writer in every way qualified to meet such a versatile opponent while on a visit with the bishop of eichstadt he was consulted upon luther's theses and gave his opinion in the obelisks on the dangerous character of the teaching they contain 
The obelisk was prepared hastily, and was not intended for publication, but it was regarded as so important that copies of it were circulated freely, even before it was given to the world. Luther replied in the asterisk, a work full of personal invective and abuse. A Dominican of Cologne, Hochstraten, also entered the lists against Luther, but his intervention did more harm than good to the cause of the Church by alienating the Humanist party, whom he assailed fiercely as allies and abettors of Luther. These attacks, however, served only to give notoriety to Luther's views and to win for him the sympathy of his friends. His opponents made one great mistake. Their works were intended in great part only for the learned, while Luther aimed principally at appealing to the masses of the people. The Augustinians represented him as the victim of a Dominican conspiracy, and to show their high appreciation of his services, they selected him to conduct the theological disputation at a chapter meeting held at Leipzig, six months after the publication of his theses, 1518. At this same meeting, Luther defended the view that free will in man and all power of doing good were destroyed by original sin, and that everything meritorious accomplished by man is really done by God. His old opponent at the university, Bobenstein, surnamed Karlstadt, from his place of birth, declared himself openly in favor of Luther's teaching on free will, and published a reply to Eck. As a result of this controversy between Eck and Karlstadt, it was arranged that the public disputation should be held at Leipzig, 27th June to 15th July, 1519. The Catholic teaching was to be defended by Eck against his two opponents, Luther and Karlstadt. A hall in the castle of Pleisenberg was placed at the disposal of the disputants by Duke George of Saxony, who was a convinced Catholic himself, and had believed that the disputation might be the means of removing many doubts and misunderstandings. The acts of the disputation were to be drawn up and forwarded to the universities of Paris and Erfurt for their decision. When it became known throughout Germany that a meeting had been arranged between Eck and his two principal opponents, the excitement, especially in the learned circles, became intense, and so great was the rush of scholars from all parts of the country to witness the encounter that the immense hall was packed with an eager and attentive audience when Eck and Karlstadt entered the pulpits that had been prepared for them. Few men in Germany, or outside it, were more fitted to hold their own in such a disputation than the distinguished vice-chancellor of Ingolstadt. He was a man of imposing appearance, gifted with a clear and pleasing voice and good memory, even-tempered and ready, quick to detect the weak points of his adversaries, and keenly alert to their damaging concessions and admissions. The first point to be debated between him and Karlstadt was the question of grace and free will. Karlstadt was at last obliged to concede but the human will was active at least to the extent of cooperating, or of not cooperating, with divine grace, a concession that was opposed entirely to the thesis he had undertaken to sustain. Luther, alarmed by the discomfiture of his colleague, determined to enter the list at once on the question of the primacy of the Roman See. He was not, however, more successful than Karlstadt. Eck, taking advantage of Luther's irascible temperament and its exaggerations of speech, forced him step by step to put aside as worthless interpretations given by the early fathers to certain passages of scripture, and to reject the authority and fallibility of general counsels. Such a line of arguments, opposed as it was to the teaching and beliefs of the church, roused the opposition of the audience, and served to open the eyes of Duke George to the real nature of Luther's movement. Annoyed by his own defeat, and by the attentions and applause lavished upon his rival by the people of Leipzig, Luther left the city in disgust. 
the disputation undoubtedly did good in so far as it made clear to all the position of the two parties and succeeded in holding duke george of saxony and the city of leipzig loyal to the church but it also did much harm by giving luther the notoriety that he was so anxious to obtain and winning to his side philip melanchthon who was destined to be in after life his ablest lieutenant both sides as is usual in such contests claimed the victory the universities of cologne and louvain condemned luther immediately as did also paris in fifteen twenty two but as far as can be known erfurt pronounced no decision on the questions submitted end of section five